The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Is the President of the United States going to plunge the world into another war? No, the United States must have the greatest navy in the world because we want peace. But in order to have peace, while the nations of the world are preparing to spring at each other's throats, we must be able to command peace. Peace and a return to prosperity go hand in hand only through one agency. While hundreds of thousands of families are wondering where the next meal is coming from. While I'm vainly trying to balance the budget. We spent last year nearly $360 million on battleships. Why? Because the other nations of the world do. At the same time, I will show you a method whereby the world may be saved from international bankruptcy. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 17th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. We're joined in studio today with two guests who are no... Strangers to Just Right, John Thompson of the Strategic Intelligence Group, and Salim Mansur, Associate Professor of Political Science at Western University. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Indeed, thank you. Before we begin, though, Bob's got the usual contact information for everybody. Oh, absolutely. We want to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Now, although Robert and I briefly discussed our initial reactions to the pending presidency of U.S. President-elect Donald Trump, as promised, we saved our more in-depth analysis for our next get-together with our two guests today. Uh, as you know, Donald Trump was on 60 Minutes this past weekend, and I found it interesting that one of the opening comments made by Leslie Stahl, who inter interviewed him, was, quote, What we discovered in Mr. Trump's first television interview as president-elect was that some of his signature issues at the heart of his campaign were not meant to be taken literally, but as open bids for negotiation. Now, Salim, that almost sounds verbatim what you have been saying on the show. So I didn't know whether the three of us should just sit back for the first 15 minutes and let Salim gloat <laughs> over, <laughs> over all his accurate predictions. You've been right on, on the target since uh, Trump first stepped on the stage, Salim. So kick it off for us. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. I mean, uh, yes, I mean, y you guys are just right. Uh, you, Robert, and you, Bob, uh, you provided the forum for some of us to come around and ruminate and speculate and make statements, you know, going way back when. And yes, uh, I, I picked up Trump uh, when he came out that afternoon in June 2015 and announced his candidacy. And I mentioned that to you all, and we have ha been having conversation. So I'm a little, uh, 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 have a sense of, uh, being vindicated, if I might use the word, that, you know, I don't have to eat a crow. Uh, That's a big, <laughs> nice wide smile you got today. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 never, I never doubted that 
that Trump would win. And there are whole sorts of reasons. And John is here and he might have shared his thoughts. But, you know, what what you quoted just now about, about Trump or, or the people speaking about him, this is true. The, the media, the press, uh, right across uh, our continent, uh, in the U.S. media, and of course, lock, stock, and barrel, the Canadian media and the political class, took everything that Trump said literally, but they never took him seriously. Yes. And those people who watched him and who became the people who supported him through the primaries, the 40% that rallied around him, you know, and it never went down and that carried him. That was the Archie Bunker crowd. And that, that crowd then grew in numbers. They took him seriously. They understood him, mm-hmm. but they never read him literally. You know, they never, they never confused it. So they understood what Trump represented because they understood themselves. And what this election was, I mean, in, in, in a very small segment, this election was a massive pushback of the last eight years of Obama. But I have been pointing out to you, it was not simply the eight years of Obama. It was the last 30 years, you know, of the slide. This was the massive correction taking place that the American political class, the media, the academia, had refused to confront. That is, the world shifted on its axis when Soviet Union collapsed and disintegrated. And everyone was going through the self-correction in their own way. Europe, you know, the Soviet Union was again Russia coming back, China. You look back at this 30-year period, and what you find is the Americans did not seriously engage in reflecting that the Cold War was over, a new world was beginning, it's going to be a multipolar world, and America has to stake out a new vision of both peace and leadership that was never discussed as if they were going to go on, that nothing had changed. The United States was the uber power, the superpower, and United States is unaffected by anything. That's what this election was all about in a sense. It was a self-correction. Could they, a massive self-correction taking place. Could it have been also a correction against many decades of what are known as rhinos? Because uh, Trump gained the GOP nomination in direct opposition to a number of rhinos, Republican in name only. People saw very little distinguishing characteristics between Democrat and Republican, so they chose an outsider, completely outside. Uh, could that could that have been a factor? It's a, it's a bit more than that, but there is actually, it's the start of an inarticulate and reactive revolution. If you look at it, and this is literally the case with Hillary, the anti-establishment types of the 60s infiltrated the establishment in the 70s and became the establishment in the 80s, and certainly true for Hillary. And that's also true in Western Europe and everything else. And what we have is the development of this sort of cultural, self-appointed cultural elite that we were warned about by the late Christopher Lash in the 1990s. Uh, and they've been running everything. Yeah, Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy, I mean, I can't recommend it strongly enough. But what we've been seeing in Western Europe with the return of nativist parties, with, the, uh, with Brexit, but also with the Trump candidacy, is the pushback. This is the 1968 of a new period of permanent. Uh, and the debate is going to be furious, but what we've basically seen, in the, particularly in this election, is that 
the media establishment cannot be trusted with the truth. The political establishment that existed up until the, the election day cannot be trusted with the truth. They can't be trusted at all. They have to be reformed, swept away, and changed. And this is only starting. Well, we're actually going to get into the media in depth a little later on, but Salim, you brought up something that just got me thinking when you said that when the Soviet Union fell, when the wall came down, America lost its external foe, its focus, its public enemy number one. And it sort of turned in on itself all of that um, rage and focus that it would normally give to an external enemy and turned it onto itself. It had the opportunity, and still does, to have an external enemy in the Islamic supremacists who are out there, but they are denying that that even exists. And along comes Trump and says it point blank. We need to stop immigration from the Middle East Arab countries who are fomenting terrorism. Could you think that perhaps the natural tendency to find an external enemy as we did in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s with the Soviet Union has now been turned to another external enemy, Islamic supremacists, the jihadists, and the terrorists? Well, this is the way I would put it, uh, uh, Robert. Good point, but, you know, to elaborate, you know, we look back at history in terms of periodization, long curves, and parentheses, which marks break, breaking point. It's very interesting that it was early morning of November the 9th. The election was November the 8th, but it was early morning of November 9th when Trump came out in the Trump Tower to speak to his people after Hillary did not concede and Podesta, her campaign manager, told everybody to go home at about 2 o'clock in the morning. And then when... when uh, Disgraceful, the, by the way. Yeah, that's correct. And when, uh, when the, the people, that is the media call, Pennsylvania had flipped over to the Trump column, the game was over then, you know, and we can talk about all the various other states. So it was early morning of November 9th that Trump steps out to uh, speak to his uh, campaign people, to his supporters in Trump Tower. It was the morning of November 9, 1989, that the Berlin Wall came down. So it was 27 years after Berlin Wall that American self-corrected. So I'm just using now shorthand parentheses, 1989, 2016. An entire this is, generation. This is a, yeah, a generation. And as, as John has pointed out, you know, it goes further back. We can go back, not we, if we should go back to 1968 and the Vietnam War. There were two people, in a sense, you know, we bring history down to actual, from abstraction to real people. Two people died at this time, around this date. One was Tom Hayden, and the other was, just after the election results came out, was Leonard Cohen. Now, your listeners might not know who Tom Hayden was. He was the leader of the student radical movement, the SDS, that campaigned and destroyed basically the Democratic Party, ended Johnson's run for re-election in 1968, and so on and so forth. But Tom Hayden became 
the radical representation of where the Democratic Party headed. This is the guy who went to Hanoi. This is the guy who basically became the spokesman of the problem of the world is America. America is basically the disease, the malady, the corruption, and the whole school of thought that emerged, it emerged before that, but it took on a life of its own, the Chomsky, the Howard Zinns, and so on and so forth, the Edward Said, you know. America is the problem, okay? But there was a Cold War going on. So the Cold War was a disciplining effect on the establishment class. The intellectual class, the Ivy League professors had begun shifting. That's what Alan Bloom's book was, you know, which was a bestseller, which is a landmark book, The Closing of the American Mind. So it turned inward. It is a class of people. This is the coastal elite. This is the Democratic Party. This is the media that became the problem of the world is America. Now you fast track it forward. The Cold War ended. And how you face the world? That America is the problem. And this is where the, 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 the rhinos that you're talking about didn't push back. The Republicans didn't push back. So the silent majority that voted in Nixon in 68 and 72, the flyover country, or however you want to designate it, you know, the common Americans, white, black, yellow, doesn't matter. Those who believed in America, who saw in America that this is the greatest uh, uh, a republic in the world, the greatest experiment in freedom of a people has been turned on its head by an intellectual and political cause and turned into abusiveness. Leonard Cohen, he died. I mean, I said, you know, this guy's famous poem, Democracy Will Come Back to America. You know, his poem, Democracy yes, USA. Yes, you posted it on Facebook. It That's was right. Thoroughly enjoyable. That became the anthem. So there it is, the irony. Tom Hayden died. This is a guy who turned communist, marries Jane Fonda, the Hanoi Jane. And then the, on the other side is Leonard Cohen. Democracy Will Come. And democracy came. That was Trump stepping out on the early morning of November 9th and speaking to his people. This has been the most remarkable uh, election campaign. It'll take 30 years for the people to reflect. I went in that morning to my class and I told my student, we had a two-hour discussion. My class was taken over. Students wanted to talk about it. I said, you know, you guys are all in your early 20s. When you will reach your mid-40s, then you will recognize how important this election was. Just as I can reflect now how important the 1980 election was, because I was their age, and all my professors, most of them were Americans, were calling Reagan the man with the bedtime bonzo, the man who couldn't be trusted, the man, you know, who was crazy, you know. And, and that is where the correction is. This, this was a huge, huge moment. It was a crossing of the Rubicon. It was a dodging of the bullet because if Hillary had won, America was going to go over the precipice. Well, congratulations, Mr. Thank Trump. You. You're president-elect. Thank you. On election night, I heard you went completely silent. Was it a sort of realization of the enormity so. of this thing for I you? I think so. It's enormous. I've done a lot of big things. I've never done anything like this. It is, it is so big. It is so, uh, it's so enormous. It's so amazing. Kind of just took your breath away. Couldn't talk. A, a, a little bit. A little bit. And I think um, I realized that this is a whole different life for me now.
emphasize to you, uh, Mr. President-elect, that uh, you know, we now are going to uh, want to do everything we can to help you succeed, because if you succeed, then the country succeeds. Do you think that the, your election is a repudiation of his presidency? No, I think it's a moment in time where politicians for a long period of time have let people down. And I think it was just a repudiation of what's been taking place over a longer period of time than that. John Thompson, he wanted to expand on what Salim Ansur was saying just before the break. Well, he, he laid out the frame, the skeleton, and, and some of the muscles. Let me put on some more muscles and skin on his argument. But es essentially, we're in a period uh, where sort of the postmodernist uh, expression developed in the, in the 1960s and matured, if you can use that word, and it's become the dominant form of thinking at this time. And that's colored everything. And now our populations are rejecting it. We're saying it's all been wrong. Of course, we don't have a new vision, which is going to be a problem, because you can't set the clock back to something earlier. But postmodernism, I, I guess if you're trying to find the, uh, the best way of looking at it, um, Norman Cantor's The American Century is worth reading, but it's heavy sledding, I'll, I'll say that much. But in, for example, in postmodernism, part of the construct is that you divorce yourself from history. And the, the other point that we saw since the 60s is that you reject existing values. So old concepts like integrity, probity, trust, honor have all been dispensed with. We have these new artificial values that have come in. You know, diversity, which has never been defined. You know, tolerance, which has, again, never been defined. And this has all led to that, that some of the experience we call political correctness. And politi you know, what we call political correctness has become an ideology in everybody's lives. But it's an unreal ideology. And it has gone into very, very strange territory. And there is a point when you subject people to an artificial ideology where they reject it. You know, if you look back at the French Revolution, Robespierre, you know, the French Revolution kept getting more and more uh, aggressive, more insane. And then Robespierre finally started prating on about his worship of the supreme being uh, and creating a, a deity of reason. And suddenly the Paris mob rejected him and started mocking him. Uh, and within three months he was dead. You look at the Soviet Union and you had all these weird artificial constructs with Stalinism that you know, facilitated the terror and the, the worst apparatus of the Soviet state. As soon as Stalin was gone, that vanished. The Soviets never really behaved that way again because it was too nuts, too insane. Political correctness has become too insane to tolerate. The campaign is well advanced and let us use mockery and derision as much as we can <laughs> to, to finish its death and, and then move on to something new. The problem is though is that this is a rebellion that is inarticulate. We know something's wrong we don't know how to fix it. And things could get very interesting in the next five, six years. The way you say that, uh, uh, ridicule seems to be the, the tool of choice that the left brings out when anybody tries to say that uh, probity, honesty, integrity, try to bring back some values like that, which still exist today, but are being ridiculed. They would say that, oh, you're trying to turn back the clock to a father knows best or to a leave it to beaver type of society. When you make reference to, to Roman times, to your French Revolution, 
Um, you can go back um, as far in, in history as you can. And the kind of values that people like us would like to see predominant in society have existed throughout all of history. It's just that they've either been accepted or rejected, ridiculed or uh, lauded. And we're in a process right now at a period in history when I think that those kinds of values are looking to break through that veneer of postmodern um, nonsense that we've had to uh, put up with for the last well, generation well, or two. Shakespeare said, "Tis the sport to see the uh, sapper hoist by his own petard. Uh, what the left has done is going to turn around and, and bite them back. The problem is, if you look at in history, every attempt to sort of instill values top down, such as we've been seeing for the last 20 years, fails. Uh, it always gets rejected. You know, th those values have to sort of appear on their own. Uh, and how in popular culture could they could they appear? I, I have some hopes. I mean, you look at some of the, the, the more popular movies the last little while, you know, that were strong, authentic figures, like uh, Russell Crowe figures in The Master and Commander or The Gladiator, and people resonate that because that's how they'd like to see leaders appear. But I, I don't know how we come that way for an entire society. Shall we turn the discussion towards some of the um, news we're seeing out there today with the protests of the anti-Trump people? Uh, the, uh, some are saying the orchestrated, Soros-funded, bust-in um, thugs, black block type of thugs to destroy the streets of Portland and the inner cities of a lot of the United States in response to Trump. Uh, do you have any comment on what we're seeing in the news regarding these protests? Well, I, I, a lot of what we are watching in terms of this last week uh, reaction to the election result is orchestrated. Uh, we now know that. We now know it from during the election season, during the primaries and uh, the main campaign with the tapes from the Project Veritas, you know, that, that uh, people were paid. This is the George Soros-funded organization and can, others. Can, can you can who, you actually who, recall a protest that wasn't orchestrated? Is there such a well, thing? But, but but that's precisely it. so. The, <laughs> so the, all 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 some ways, but they just orchestrated by political parties sure. or by funding groups. So what we are watching is an orchestrated work. That means the vested interest, the deep vested interest, has still not accepted the result and will not accept the result for a long while. I mean, this, I mean, mind you, I mean, this is a historic win for, I suppose, we might say, the sane people. The people who walk with their feet on the ground, they pay the taxes, they are the law-abiding citizen, you know, they respect their neighbors and they don't interfere, which is, you know, basically, people are not political philosophers and historians. But there is a natural compass in every human being, which is what the classical liberal view is, going all the way back to John Milton or John Locke, that, you know, the inner compass that is within us is naturally oriented to the true north, the true north being, you know, the values that, in a sense, is uh, reflected in the American Constitution, you know, the Declaration of Independence. I mean, these are coming out of a certain philosophical framework. And at the heart of that is that the individual 
is not a means to anybody's end. The individual is an end in himself or herself. And all of the constitutional structure and the American constitutional structure is in that sense the rock because it's the first upon which the whole idea okay. of liberal democracy has unfolded. If you look at it, if you examine it, at the heart of it is it is about the protection of the individual. On the other hand, the other side of these demonstrations is you have the agitprop rent mob class. Yeah. The people who self-express themselves, see themselves as progressives, uh, and demonstration is how they validate their beliefs and their worth. I mean, some of these are the people who turn up all the time. You know, you just sort of switch the signs around. And even then, I've been watching this class for years. You, know, you watch a demonstration, and 30% of them might get, not get the memo about what the, uh, the demonstration is actually about and turn up with the wrong signs. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not kidding. You watch them. You'll see it. And it's the same socialist worker types. It's the same earnest young kids. Uh, but also, for them, they're outraged because the narrative has been disrupted. The progressive narrative is supposed to be keep going forward to some golden new future uh, in which all will be well. And this represents a step back to them, and they reject it. They can't handle it. The other point, of course, is if you're in that end of the political spectrum, the theory is that all popular unrest belongs to you. And so that the idea that popular unrest could go in another direction is just, you know, I can't take it. It's not natural. So what do they do? They go out in the streets with placards. So on one hand, you might have the uh, the foundation money, you know, paying for some of the organizers, but you know, nine ten of nine tenths of the people who are out there are not being paid to do that. They're out there because, as far as they're concerned, the world is just turned upside down, and they can't take it. Um, I actually had some hope that being stunned by the reaction of voters to Trump that maybe the media might sober up a bit, but it hasn't happened. They're as drunk as they were before the election. Well, I mean, um, let's all have hope, but you know, let's, also, <laughs> yeah. let's also be very practical and realist. You see, the media will look for a market to which it is going to uh, give its message and cultivate that market. So here is the point. We have to soberly think about the fact of the matter that nearly half of the country, that is Americans, voted for Hillary. The worst candidate that has come down the pipe in America's 240 years, I might say. Corrupt, a liar, you know, a, a, a completely authoritarian figure, you know, and, and yet, yet, this is the amazing part. They voted for her. So that was a surprise it, to me. I didn't think she'd get as yeah, many votes the, as she did. You know, we, a lot we, of them were stolen. Uh, uh, yeah. Around this table, we are all talking about yeah. Trump. But we have to flip it over. There's a dark side to the moon also. So there it is. And this is, this is a, we, we are at an edge moment, you know. And uh, Trump, again, uh, there's a constitution. He will have his fourth term, uh, uh, one term, may have a second term. By the way, I might predict right now on the table, my, my prediction is that if Trump succeeds, we are going to be then in Trump followed by Pence administration. And we will have then a 16-year, that means recapturing the FDR moment in, in, in the spread of an era. If that happens, then America will have basically 
purged itself of the bilge that America has drunk for the last 50 years. So the bilge that America has drunk for the last 50 years, Canada has drunk, Western Europe has drunk, is what is the orchestrated Black Lives Matter, the war on women, the people who are on the street. And this constitute, and they're not, they're the kids who are doing it, but they are being managed by, they are being taught by, they are being programmed by people in the Ivy League universities. People in the New York Times, people in the Washington Post, people like, you know, what was the guy's name? Van Jones talking about on the night of the election. that look, The white lash. This is a white lash. This is a white lash against uh, a, a black president. And, and, and a total absence in that, that, that construction of the events that was happening and unfolding right in front of our eyes was an absence of self-critical thinking. That this was not a white lash. So someone had to point out to him that Hillary precisely. wasn't black. Yeah, this was a 60 million people voting against a situation that they had been living through. We can run down all the numbers. 95 million Americans out of job, without job. An American economy that was not growing, uh, you know, at its normal pace. It was growing at less than a percent. 1% per annum growth. You know, so you look at the numbers, you can, and that's what the American people were voting for, against, the record of a failed administration, you know. So, but still, the fact of the matter, 60 million people voted for Hillary Clinton. And that says a lot, and we have to examine that, just as the Canadians voted for Justin Trudeau last year. Though more indictments are likely in the Whitewater investigation, President Clinton is still refusing to say whether he will pardon former Whitewater associates Jim and Susan McDougall. But when asked if he would pardon First Lady Hillary Clinton, the president was crystal clear. Quote, she does the crime, she does the time. <laughs> Meanwhile, President Clinton is hard at work on Tuesday's State of the Union address, in which he'll focus on crime, education, and the economy. At the request of the First Lady, part of the President's speech will be huge lies. <laughs> In Whitewater News, federal regulators quizzed Hillary Clinton at the White House this week and gave her a perfect score on the lying section. She's a dirty liar. <laughs> Hillary Rodham Clinton has told people that she was named for the first man to climb Mount Everest, Sir Edmund Hillary. But as Esquire magazine recently pointed out, Sir Edmund did not climb Mount Everest until 1953, six years after Hillary was born. However, the First Lady does have a good explanation for the discrepancy. She loves to lie. <laughs> You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. Bob? Now, Salim, you were mentioning we had to take Hillary into account in this, of course, because she still got a lot of votes, and it was a factor. An interesting Gwen Dyer wrote on November 3rd, just before the election, he said, no matter who wins, things will get messier. 
And of course, it ended up being a diatribe against Trump. <laughs> and even if Donald Trump loses the U.S. presidential election, he says, we, uh, the wells are poisoned. Either crooked Hillary becomes president and spends the next four years fighting off legal challenges and fearing assassination by Trump's more deranged admirers, or Trump becomes president and the United States becomes the world's biggest, most dangerous loose cannon. And he blames Trump on the whole thing, blaming constant lies and threats and personal abuse, which I just can't see. I don't know where he's getting that. Calls him a sociopath. Uh, doesn't have any core beliefs beyond his own aggrandizement and power. And if Trump loses, he predicts that there would be a possibility that Trump would send out coded calls, get this, for violence. Okay, now it, it's almost the reverse, what has happened. What do you make of this? It, what, 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 what is the situation now? <laughs> would it have been well, better with Hillary? Well, look, I mean, uh, in, 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 our, in our conversation, what we, we are talking about, uh, in one sense, of the larger framework, the context, but, your, but what your question raises is also to talk about the individual. And that is about Trump and Hillary, so in the case of Trump. The, once Trump announces candidacy, we can go back and look at the record of the last 18 months, there was a uniform smear of the man. It was not simply the left that smeared him. The left was going to smear him. That was understood. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on. But the smear was from the right. That is from the conservative. Look, the National Review ran a whole edition called Never Trump. Right. But, but, uh, that, uh, but that right is what no, we, Robert but, and I but, was But this is what we, I'm coming down to. <laughs> this man was, was, was smeared and attacked and vilified by the people on the conservative side of the aisle. So what, why was that happening? We can take it for granted the left will do it. But why did the right do it? Because Trump was coming from a background that was completely that of an outsider. He didn't belong to a political class. He was a businessman. He didn't hold uh, a ticket with either party, though he gave liberally to both sides as a businessman, you know, who came to him. Whether it was Chuck Schumer, whether it was Rand Paul, whether it was Ted Cruz, he gave money to them, and he gave money to the uh, Republican. So here was an attack on this man saying that, you know, he doesn't have any understanding of the world of Washington. That means all the language that a political class practices to articulate their message, their interests, and so on. Trump didn't. That's true. Trump was a businessman, and he came in. And that has continued. You know, uh, the most remarkable piece of smear was written about Trump by Brett Stevens of Wall Street Journal. Brett Stevens wrote during the primaries, that we have to teach not only Trump, but all of Trump's supporters that they cannot do this by crushing them in such a manner that they will remember never to do this again. What were they doing? They were doing is rallying behind a man who was outside of the political class. So going back to your earlier question, uh, uh, Robert, why did Trump win? Why did he defeat it? The American public, at least those who voted for Trump initially and then later on in the general election, they turned their back on the political class. 
in other words, the political class is only there for the self-interest. And we were warned 25 years ago that the political class that was evolving in the Western world was becoming dysfunctional. Yes. You know, they're process-oriented, they're inwardly focused, um, and out of touch with, actually, the general public. That was the warning from, uh, as I said, Christopher Lash and, and so many others. Well, I, I can agree with that, that, you know, just as, as Salim was saying these things, I'm, I have these, the very words you were saying are sitting in front of my, my face here. Have you seen this article from the National Post in Trump's Thrall by Jonathan Kay? <laughs> Pretty disgusting. He's, 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 he's I would use the it. word despicable. But you, that, that's a very good word, thank you. But he was railing against Conrad Black earlier yeah. being on Trump's side, which you mentioned on the show before. But he did identify what I think is the source of many conservative-minded people who hate Trump. And he said, as Tuesday's election grew closer, quote, I became distressed by the number of conservative intellectuals rallying to Trump's side, despite the fact his adult life has been one long, sickening assault upon such basic conservative values as decency, humility, and fidelity. Now, these things are not exactly political things. These are personal things. But this is exactly the point, uh, uh, Bob, that the smear took on a life of its own. They constructed a caricature of Trump, and then they swallowed that caricature whole, believing in it. That's the problem that I, I, I have seen. There was not a single honest moment of self-critical thinking about this. When New York Times in January ran the first page hit piece about Trump and the women. They got together several women to come out, or at least they quoted several women, to say how Trump had been, you know, abusive towards them or had yeah, groped the, them. The Bill Cosby out. phenomenon all over yeah, again. Yeah, but if you remember now that January thing, what turned out was the very women who New York Times was quoting came out publicly and said that they had been misquoted. They had been wrong. Trump had been the complete gentleman all along. So you see, they, they had a purpose, and they were going to destroy it. The interesting thing is they, were going to de they would destroy whoever would have been the nominee of the Republican Party in the 2016 election cycle, as they did with Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, the perfect gentleman, if, if one to say, who is the per a devoted man to one wife, a perfect gentleman, a man of a religious background, though a Mormon, etc., 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 they destroyed him. They called him that he hadn't paid tax. That's Harry Reid said that. They destroyed him about that 47% of thing that they ran a clip against him. They destroyed him by saying, you know, he drove a car with his dog on the, on the top of his car, you know. Uh, so the idea of destroying people was part of the establishment media and part of the establishment intellectuals. It's interesting that 47% remark because that may have worked back at that election, but Hillary's attempted to, to do the exact same thing by calling half of Trump supporters deplorable absolutely backfired and probably lost her elec the election. I, I am a deplorable. <laughs> I, I, I fit the, the profile entirely, you know. Uh, I go to church regularly. I own firearms. Uh, just, I, I'm sorry. But it's nice to have a tag, though, that I can use. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if we couldn't talk about another smear that's ongoing prior to and even post-election, and that is the use of the word racist to describe Trump. I was listening to the radio in the last couple of days 
where the political pundits on Sirius XM's channels, News Talk 1010 in Toronto, AM 980 here in London, were prefacing the word Donald Trump by the word racist and, and using it tacitly saying the racist Donald Trump, That's a- the racist Trump supporters, and using it in a way as if it cannot be challenged. I, I've got news. That button doesn't work anymore. I, I guess in my own personal experience about 30 years ago, you know, I was going after the heritage front, the white supremacists, because, you know, well, who wasn't? And they were uh, a fascinating little bunch. But I was also at going after the Mohawk Warrior Society, the Tamil Tigers, and various others. And I've been called a racist so many times, the button's worn out. And it never, it never sticks because it doesn't work. It's a construct. And the, the construct is now failed. The thing is that it's an actually... It's, it's being used in the wrong sense as well, and I wonder if people aren't latching on to the actual definition of the word, because I don't know of anything that Trump said which refers to race not. negatively. He talks about illegal Mexican immigration. So in other words, law-breaking immigrants from a nation, not a race. Being Latino is not a race, it's an ethnicity. Race is just another form, uh, the term now is just another form of profanity. Yes, You exactly. lard it in your conversation to try and add emphasis to something, but the word has basically been so polluted it's lost all meaning. Exactly. When he talks about restricting immigration from Muslim countries, Muslim isn't a race. Islam is not a race. Well, also, he was deliberately misquoted on that one, if you recall, because he said, until we can figure out what's going on. We did a whole show on that yeah. one. In yes. other words, the yeah, comma it, period when you can tell yeah. the difference between a, <laughs> a, a, comma a salafist uh, who you might not want in your country and an Ismaili who you would. Yes. And, 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 and we, we didn't misquote him on yeah. that way. As a matter of fact, we played the entire thing and talked about it at length. The thing is, though, I wonder if there's not some sort of backlash, not white lash, but backlash against the use of words that are obviously incorrect, almost as, uh, akin to a, a backlash by the general public when the Hollywood celebrities come out and saying, you better vote Hillary. And people are, people are saying, no, no, I don't have to do that. Donald Trump is a racist. No, I haven't heard anything he says that says that he's a racist. And the people are actually say, starting to turn around and say, this is nonsense when people and collectivists are telling me why to vote when it's blatantly incorrect. Well, I guess there's another point, and I think it's probably true for all of us. I mean, before Trump declared his candidacy, I thought he was basically... Uh, an ignorant blowhard. You know, I never paid him much attention, and he was involved in celebrity television. And what drove his campaign was all the negativity. The more he got attacked, the more his numbers went up. Yes. You know, the more Hollywood endorsements that came out, the more celebrity endorsements uh, for for Hillary that were, the more Trump was vilified, the more his support firmed up. That's true for a lot of people. I, in the end, I mean, I still don't like him, but I was cheering for him. Largely because I wanted to see him win against all this negativity. Mm -hmm. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens, 
In the budget I will present to you, we will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. What about the pledge to deport millions and millions of undocumented immigrants? What we are going to do is get the people that are criminal and have criminal records, gang members, drug dealers, we have a lot of these people, probably two million, it could even be three million. We're getting them out of our country or we're going to incarcerate, but we're getting them out of our country, they're here illegally. After the border is secured and after everything gets normalized, we're gonna make a determination on the people that you're talking about, who are terrific people. They're terrific people. But we're going to make a determination at that. But before we make that determination, Leslie, it's very important. We want to secure our border. I was, I was thinking the whole issue about Trump and all the opposition to him by the media and everyone is not unique to Trump. And I just wonder if it's, an, if it's just the left's general outrage against anything that's on the right. Because I have to tell you, Robert and I get the same vindictive, out-of-context, bizarre accusations when we post something on Facebook or anything like that. So when I'm seeing the same things happening to Trump that are happening to me, I have, there's an all, the, all of a sudden there's an identity connection between me and Trump. I'm going, well, wait a minute. If it's as inapplicable to me as it is to him, then he must be an okay guy with all these people yelling at him. And I just wondered if, if maybe we're looking at something beyond Trump that he's just a symbol of. Yes, we are. And, and, and let's put it on the table. This election was about its culture stupid. Yeah. There was all the other factors in there. There was economics in there. Which is, which is, of course, the most important, and Trump's campaign was about jobs and the economy. So, you know, all the issues links to the central issue of job, which was uh, Im uh, illegal immigration, which, which, which hurts jobs in America, you know, it depresses wages and so on. Renegotiating trade, it was about jobs. Uh, Obamacare, it was about jobs. So all of these things did connect. But the overarching theme, I will say, that that was there, which is what made Trump the ultimate winner in a sense that he was the flag carrier. And, and, and the Trump phenomena, that is the people rallied around him, was it's a culture. Political correctness works, and it worked. Oh, political correctness, ideology, it works when the other side also internalizes it. You know, to be called a racist and then to say, okay, maybe I was a racist, maybe I did say something that was, you know, incorrect or wrong, that need to be apologetic, to concede is what was happening, you know. And that's why, whether you call it the left, the center left or whoever, in Canada, the political correctness is now the basic ideology of Canada, multiculturalism. It is in our statutes. It is in our way we think and live. 
you see. But many of us know, I wrote the book on this, that multiculturalism doesn't have a leg to stand off when you examine the basis and the premises of it. Because cultures cannot be equal. It is individuals, as the Declaration of Independence says, that are born equal. Cultures vary. So yes, it was a cultural issue. And people were intimidated and people were afraid, especially people who are the hard hat people. And you had the sophisticated people telling them, you're incorrect, you're wrong, you're racist, you know. We need to have a transgender bathroom. A, a minuscule population, less than 1%, and the government has to spend money to reconstruct how we are going to live. Okay. Finally, they found their man. And, and so we have to also then recognize this is, a, this is a dynamic, this is a feedback loop. Trump, and it was that first instance, I will recall for you all, when he stepped forward on August the 7th at Cleveland, and there were 17 candidates, and Trump was one of them, and the question that Megyn Kelly launched at him was, you are a misogynist, this is what you have done, this is what you have called. All of the other candidates would have wet their pants because, you know, millions of people were watching. What did Trump do? Trump said, only Rosie O'Donnell. Yes. And then he stepped back and he said, America doesn't have time to be politically correct and I don't have time to be politically correct. You see, that gumption, that chutzpah, or that capacity to say what he said in front of millions of people where everybody, Jeb Bush, Rick Perry, Bobby Jindal, Rand Paul, Ted, would have wet their pants because that's the whole dynamics of the loop. Trump blew it away, and at that moment, he won the election. I think there's that, an article. That was the shot on Fort Sumter. The rebellion was declared. Oh, indeed, yeah. yes, and I think we mentioned that before. The Rosie O'Donnell comment won him not only the GOP nomination, but the election. And it was that kind of comment who won him the election. But there was an article on Tuesday's Globe Mail by Margaret Wente, I think, that exemplifies the instilling of this culture you're talking about as actually a culture of fear now that you have a Trump as a president of the United States, when she wrote an article that listed all of the good things that Canada and the United States can see from a Trump presidency, from the infrastructure spending all the way down to his foreign policy, uh, to the uh, Keystone XL pipeline approval, things of that nature, saying that this is going to be great for the American people and for Canada. And then she ends her article by saying, don't get me wrong, I think the election of Mr. Trump is a disaster. It's as if she's trying to sleep in two beds at the same time. She's trying to placate a common culture which says that Donald Trump is a misogynist racist and it's a disaster with the evidence which says that that's not necessarily the case. And I think it's indicative of a lot of the press and a lot of people in the next four years are going to be coming out saying the exact same thing. Oh, we like his policy on this, but it's a disaster, all the rest of it. Thoughts? And the term disaster uh, will lose its <coughs> credibility. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it means to be a disaster. Yes, great. Yeah. A million jobs now in Alberta because of Keystone XL or things of that nature. Yeah. What a disaster. Well, the measure of Trump's presidency will be till the next midterm election, because that's when he will win the mandate or he will lose the mandate, will be whether he can get the American economy chugging to 3% growth. Once that happens, all the other issue fades away. Uh, Trump won the election. Trump has to win the mandate. 
recall that in 2008, Obama won the election. In 2010, he lost the mandate. How? Because the people gave the House back to the Republicans. You see, Obama's big signature item was Obamacare 2009. They pushed it without a single Republican vote in the House. You see? So it was arrogance, it was hubris, it was exactly what the problem the people came to see. That is, the elite knows what's best for us. They will tell us which bathroom to use, they will tell us how to live a life, they will tell us where to shop, they will tell us what to think. 2010, Obama lost the mandate, but he never understood that. And then in 2012, he won the election because, again, the media came down heavy on Mitt Romney, and Romney couldn't handle the media. Remember the debate, you know, Cindy Crawley, and then he just faded away. But then what happened? 2014 midterm election, the people turned back and gave the Senate back to the Republicans, you see. In both instances, the Republican rhinos saw themselves as part of the establishment class. They did not read the message that the people were sending them. That we have sent you to Washington. You are the opposition. You have to play the role of the opposition. You have to stop the president. You have to stop this method of governing that Obama was practicing, which is executive orders, mm -hmm. you see, which had no legislative uh, uh, signature on it. And Trump intuitively understand. He's an American. He's a businessman. He's a man of the art of the deal. So here is the bottom line. He understands something which Obama and the left never understood because they are the zero-sum people. I win, you lose. Trump is a positive-sum people. You win, and therefore I win. We all win together. And if he can grind forward on the economy, you look at it here in Ontario, for pretty much the same reasons, but, you know, the Rust Belt. Uh, and I remember a, a friend of mine traveling from uh, Massachusetts to New York uh, last year, and he basically said Hillary signs are up in Boston, they were up in New York, and there wasn't one to be seen between them. It was all Trump signs in all these old, yeah. shut-down industrial towns. America wants to go back to work. So do we in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, and this great recession has gone on long enough. And if Trump can actually get some traction going forward on that, then he'll have his uh, Congress, he'll have his Senate, and he'll have eight years if he wants it. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I wonder if in those couple of minutes we could at least bring this discussion on a different track. Here at Just Right, we don't just talk about what's just right. We also talk about what's wrong as well. And I know that you're going to have to say something that Donald Trump you disagree with. What do you disagree with with Donald Trump's policies? He, ga he gave a 100-day plan. Are there anything in there that you disagree with, Salim and John? Uh, well, with Hubris to actually have a 100-day plan, I don't think he can uh, get things going. And this is another point, too, is that we talked about the left and the right, and we forgot the third faction, the bureaucracy. Mm. The bureaucrats are the most entrenched element of Washington, and nobody's ever been able to shift them. And just like in Canada, vote who you want in as the prime minister and as the governing party, but the bureaucracy is its own existence. The bureaucracy is, in fact, really the government. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got to muscle things through them, and it's mm -hmm. not easy. So if it doesn't make America great again, it's probably in due 
partly by the fact that you've got millions of government employees who aren't on that train track. And, and they're uh, <clears throat> the inertia, the, yes. the dead hand of the bureaucracy is a very difficult one. So you think he may have overreached himself? Uh, I think his real struggle is only beginning. Salim? No, I, I, I can't because, you know, I mean, the record of the man is his world of business. So now he's stepping into a new arena. So we can only go back by the record and then extrapolate from there what we might see. From the record, we see that this guy is a winner. The reason he's a winner is because he knows how to work with people. Right. You see, he knows how to bring people together. And I would extrapolate that that's what I would like to see uh, or, or I, I, I expect to see uh, who he places around him, who will be his advisors, who he's going to consult with. You can see the message. I mean, here you had a man during the primary season and then during the general election period when the Access Hollywood tape came out, the leadership of the Republican Party that is now in the House and in the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, came and distanced themselves from him. In fact, Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, said he is not going to campaign for Trump. Tell me, what can be a more insulting thing said to the nominee of the party who's running for the presidency that the Speaker of the House comes out and he says he won't campaign for him? And what does Trump do? Trump wins the presidency and reaches out to these people. He's reached out to Mitt Romney, he's reached out to Jeb Bush, he's, he's reached out to uh, Paul Ryan, to Mitch McConnell, you know, people who talked about that he's going to be a drag on the ticket. It has been just the reverse. Right. He comes in, he wins both. The, 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 you know, well, uh, the, even, even Ronald Reagan didn't win uh, uh, the, the Senate and the House in the 1980 election. It was Tip O'Neill who, who managed the deals with Ronald, who was the, who was the Democrat. Speaking so of deals, is, isn't it to Donald Trump who wrote the book on negotiation, The Art of the Deal? Precisely. This is what I've been saying to my students and others. You see, you, you, what has happened for the last 50 years is as if politics can only be understood and explained by quote-unquote the expert, the guy with a PhD from Cornell or Princeton or Harvard, so Obama, a Harvard man, or for the political class, all these pundits, whether the Wall Street Journal, the, the Rich Lowry's and the Jonah Goldberg's or the National Review. No, the uniqueness of the American political system is the common man is a sovereign. We, the people, and Trump instinctively understand that. He doesn't understand it as a theory. Well, Salim and John, thank you for uh, giving us your insights on the whole issue that we're looking forward into the future. And I guess the question is, will Trump move America and the world in the right direction? We may never know by listening to the established media or the experts, but you can always count on the direction that we'll be moving. And with that, join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Thank you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Our top story tonight. As new questions arise about Hillary Clinton's role in Whitewater, the president appears to be distancing himself from the First Lady. Earlier today in his weekly radio address, the president insisted, Hey, 
I sleep with hundreds of girls. I can't vouch for all of them, you know? <laughs>